Welcome to the Paths Fathers Products Podcast. My name is Yuli. I work in product service strategy and I come from a service design background. And I'm Aniko. I come from software development and I have worked in everything from software development to product development and management as well. Welcome to our next walk in the forest. This is our last episode in this season where we talk about the topic that we have been avoiding the whole season. Indeed. It's uh, the company where we met at, which was a very exciting experiment in flat decision-making structures and co-ownership with all of its ups and downs. So on this walk, we will discuss the ins and outs of this story, the spark in the beginning and the... And how we said goodbye to this adventure. Indeed. So come join us and uh, hear out how a group of young, unexperienced uh, product bunch tries to set up a company, run a company, manage an agency and create new ventures on the market. Yeah, let's walk. Let's walk. Okay. Hi, Yuli. So hi, Aniko. How are you today? I'm fine. And you? I'm fine too. I'm happy the flooding rain is over. Yes, I really hope it won't come back. Today we are back in the Buddha Hills on the Rose Hill. Yeah, maybe we will have less boars here. Yes, last time you guys missed the fun and excitement when we ran into a boar family of five or six. And it ended up us running away (laughs) from them. Yeah. So it was so funny. The last time you called me, I realized that according to my phone, you are still my colleague from Lab Co-op. Really? Yeah. I didn't update your uh, company title. I don't know, in the past 10 years. (laughs) Maybe it's, uh, it's time for us to do a little time travel and talk about this little adventure of ours a decade ago, almost a decade ago. Yeah, we have mentioned some parts of it, but there are so many interesting things about having a co-owned company and working with holacracy and just that full story. Yes, let's just say that was the place where we first met. So we were colleagues and co-owners of a company in the beginning. Maybe we should get give a bit more context. Okay. So let's let's start about discussing what this company looked like. Yes. So we are talking approximately 2015-ish. But yeah, it was 2015. And the company was a new venture initiated by a bunch of guys coming from another startup. And the idea was to run an end-to-end product agency, which is co-owned by the employees, making everyone working there both an employed and an owner of this entity, and running it by a management system, management approach called Holacracy, which gives opportunity to 
everybody to participate in managing and running the company itself. Yeah, and basically giving us a framework for shared decision making. Yeah, right. And on a higher level, the idea was to run this agency, but at the end of the day, use this company as a first step towards investing into other ideas, new ideas, new companies, so to become a part venture company. Yeah, a venture builder as well. Yes. And like back then, some of it was wildly experienced with concepts. So there were many agencies trying to build their own products and like investing their earned money or their free time into building ventures. And also there were a lot of companies experimenting with various types of flat structures and flat decision making and uh, simplified organizations. But like this combination was pretty unique and this implementation that we had was pretty unique and exciting. Yes. It was an innovator magnet or a millennial <laughs> magnet. <laughs> right. So how did you end up at the lab? Well, I remember our first lunch with the founders in the Buddha castle. In the Buddha castle? In the Buddha castle, because their first office was close to there. And uh, an old friend of mine, who I used to go to high school with, was one of the people at this table. And we also had one of the founders said that he saw my talk at a local conference that I gave about probably some kind of CSS stuff. I don't know. Back then, that was my main go-to topic. And uh, he said that he liked it. And he said that they needed some kind of expertise that was more front-end focused. Then they pitched me this idea of a co-owned company run by a by this framework called Holacracy by all of the owners and all of the employees who work there. And why did you decide to join? What was the USP for you? Back then, I was mainly working as an individual contractor for various clients that I got through, mostly through my network. So I was organizing meetups and I had a good relationship with my previous employers or clients. And that was mainly my my sales channel. But I found that part always like really hard and I didn't really enjoy selling myself and getting clients and putting a number, putting a value on my work, coming up with that number. That was always hard. And uh, what they pitched to me sounded like I would have a similar level of control over what I'm doing than as an individual contractor. But I could use the benefit of not working alone and having other people around me who are better at sales, for example, who could deal with that part of the job. So that was my my main uh, selling point for me. The part where we were planning to grow our own ventures was not that interesting for me, to be honest, because by that time I have seen a lot of failed startups and I was 
even back then, I didn't really believe in that whole startup-y thing, I guess. So that was the the second of my priority list. The first one was the, the holacracy, the making decisions together, the working together with people and doing it right while preserving our own internal motivations, but sharing the responsibilities a little bit. And the sales that you don't have to do yeah, sales, yeah, right? Yeah. And the sales that I don't have to do. <laughs> I guess our motivations for joining were pretty different, right? So what what was what made you join this experimental team? So I met one of the founders also at the conference. We were both presenting it. It was a TEDx conference uh, a few years prior to that. So we knew each other from there, but not very well. And up until that time, I had been working as an employee. I had not had a freelance experience, although maybe that's arguable because I had many different <laughs> internship experiences across <laughs> the globe. So in that sense, I'm just discussing it with myself now, whether that's true or not. But <laughs> work-wise, official work-wise, I had been only an employee until then, and I had no experience of running my own show or anyone's show. But when, when they reached out, it was a good moment because I was ready to leave this company where I, I was working at, mainly for the reason that I felt that while I was gaining access to higher level responsibility and decision-making and just reach uh, work-wise, I felt I was not compensated um, for that. And not just financially, I felt the recognition was not there. And with that, I felt it was very much an imbalance. So it seemed to me that this company... Actually, it's not so far away from what you were saying. This company would allow me to make the decisions that influence this kind of an experience of an employee. And I felt I would rather be part of the decision-making and fail than just suffer from someone else's failure, if that makes sense. And I didn't really know anybody else in the group at that time, so we didn't know each other either. We just met there. But I thought it would be an interesting thing to try. And, you know, we keep talking about creating impact and what's the right impact or what's the, what's an appealing impact for us. But honestly, back in the day, I don't think I was that conscious of it as I am now. So I like the idea to be able to multiply our, let's call it impact, by investing into things that we find interesting, but I didn't really have a big, big, big idea about it, what it would be. So I think also for me, the venture part was maybe less so, uh, but yeah, it's still interesting. I thought it was like a nice extra perk to the whole thing. Yeah, I liked the idea to to be in a group and try to work around consensus and learn from each other and build something together, I guess. that's That was it. Do you know where this uh, motivation came from? Because around that time, there were a few companies who had this initiative as well around the world. 
Yeah. I mean, I think back then, especially for for development teams, it was pretty hard to find good developers and to retain them. It, this was before the boom of uh, coding boot camps. <laughs> and uh, companies were trying different strategies to attract the best people. And that would be my, be my assumption that this was one of those. Like, there were those companies where they were trying to make the life of developers the most more most comfortable that's possible with the beanbag chairs and the free food and the foosball foosball tables <laughs> at least in this region <laughs> and then there were companies where they were trying to appeal to these people's uh, feeling of ownership and being motivated by that feeling of ownership and yeah i could also sense like a tendency of these experts these professionals getting more and more uh, arrogant and uh, hard to work with so if you could appeal to them being able to affect the direction the company is going to, then you can appeal to that arrogance as well. You could say high maintenance, maybe? I would say so, yes. And I also include myself in the definition, so it's not like everyone but but me. I was also one of those people. Are there other examples today that still run in this format? Spotify was one of the famous ones who... Uh, introducing Holocaust, you know? No, I think they were experimenting with alternative organizational structures, but it wasn't Holocaust. They had like this matrix kind of structure, which was also not hierarchical, so it was more experimental than what we had back then. I think the big uh, name for companies experimenting with Holocaust was Zappos. I just checked. It's It's true, yes. Okay. There are a few examples here. Zappos, David Allen Company, Springest, a software company in the Netherlands and Germany. Yeah, here we go. Check out www.holacracy.org, Holacracy Practitioner Stories. <laughs> so this was just one of the many implementations that we had back then and have to this day about alternative organizational structures. I think it's not the most uh, popular today. So that's why that list is not much longer. That's probably because it's a very strict structure and not many people can easily adapt to that. <laughs> and also to this day, I haven't seen like a good onboarding ramp for that. Yes. Yes, let's talk about that. How did we adapt to this setup? But before we do that, I can also just recap. So this company was employee-owned, employee-co-owned company. It was run by a management system called Holacracy, which supports a very flat organizational structure and allows everybody to participate in decision-making if they wanted to, other than their daily job. And it was also a company 
which didn't just want to provide services, but also wanted to do investment investments. Yeah. Yeah. And venture building. <laughs> okay. So how did we adapt to this system or how did we adopt the system? Yeah, I think I was in an easier situation because I joined pretty early. So I was there from the beginning where we started to build up our uh, structure of circles and rules and uh, also like the administrative side of the ZRT. (laughs) Private limited company. PLC. Okay. Yeah, so I joined the team pretty early and I saw how we came up with these solutions and uh, I got used to the strict rules of holacracy like in the same pace as almost everyone else that was there at the moment. And and I'm also like good at following rules and understanding complex sets of rules and that's like my brain really likes that so it was really easy for me to understand all the different structures of roles and accountabilities and domains and the the meeting structures that were pretty rigid and well set. When I joined, I really liked the idea that we will be participating in this whole decision-making and management, but I forgot that we need to learn how. And while I actually also, as we went on and I learned more about it, I really enjoyed doing it. Yeah. But it was not easy to get a hold of what is it. <laughs> it's just a butterfly. It's fine. It's not a nice feeling when you're in a forest and something is caressing your arm that doesn't belong to you or a tree. And it's pretty unusual for butterflies to do that. I mean, that's the main thing that differentiates a butterfly from a moth that butterflies just let you do your thing and moths are just coming into your room and want to interact want to interact and mess up your lights and everything so butterflies are not supposed to do that the world is doomed (laughs) so yes when i joined the company i felt that even though there were some sessions to bring us up to speed it was really not enough to you know, to put us in the place where we can comfortably participate, comfortably and effectively participate. And there were moments where it felt like a burden instead of a gift. There were huge inequalities in how one could participate, depending on how much we knew about the system. It also felt like a fast track in economy. Economics, like something that you had studied in school, all of a sudden was, you know, rolling out in front of your eyes. What is a PLC? Why do I need to open a shareholders account in no other than Luxembourg? I mean, I remember I still have a screenshot from that process when I did the opening of that account, and the bank asked me which industry. I was coming from and it gave me a list of options and I think that list is the most hilarious list of my life that I've ever seen. It includes and I need to apologize to anyone who belongs to those industries here but I just thought it was a very (laughs) funny mix. So on this list you could find charities uh, or kind of religious organizations, vegetable and fruit sellers, 
oil and gas industry, IT, the escort business, um, weapon and other military um, commerce business. Uh, let me think. I think it's already a nice mix of the options that we could choose from. So yeah. I thought, when I saw this list, I thought, oh my God, if ever there was like the ultimate party, this would be the, <laughs> the guest list for it. So yeah, there were a lot of things that we needed to learn and I thought there was not a well-designed support for it, but it was also natural. I mean, it was just starting up. We were just yeah. starting up. Yeah. Yeah, I remember we were experimenting with holding extra meetings where we could discuss our learnings in the about holacracy and many other attempts. But I also felt, like constantly felt that people are having trouble with the system itself and how to participate and we were not really handling that perfectly. And it was surprising for me because we had great experts on organizational development. We had people who turned out to be great experts on uh, education itself. So it seemed like the perfect combination. <laughs> Could have worked. Yeah, to come up with a system where it's very easy to onboard people to this new knowledge. And it wasn't. <laughs> well, you know, I, in retrospect, I also, now that I, I've seen so many other companies' examples, I also just think that there were way too many new things that needed to be shaped up quickly, parallel one to one another. Yeah. We, you know, if, if that was the only challenge, maybe we could have done better. But there were so many other things that we were just building at the time. I don't want to find excuses, but I think that's, you know, maybe <laughs> yeah, that's definitely. also a realistic point of view. And maybe it's a good moment to mention that, yes, there was one person in this very young organization who was dedicated solely to work on the organizational structure and organizational yes. challenges, right? Yeah, and that's pretty cool. Like, what, what was the size of the company back then? It was like, I don't know, 10, 15 people. Yes. So at that scale, it's really cool to have a dedicated person. Yes. Some of our colleagues were not really motivated. I, mean, I guess if we had a, a session where we talked to all of them, we would learn who was motivated by what. But there were a few of them who were less motivated by these aspects. And so their engagement into participation was also a lot less. And I think because of this, let's say, less successful onboarding, only amplified that, unfortunately. So it didn't yeah. help to get them on board. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad part that not everyone is equally interested in participating in shaping an organization because, yeah, they might be not there for that. The, yes. the only problem was that these were not clear, these expectations and their motiv these motivations, and that caused some tensions. And I guess the, the choices, yeah, you can you can be in or out, and it doesn't necessarily, as you say, if you choose not to be in, doesn't necessarily mean that you are doing something bad for the company. Yeah, exactly. And maybe in a way it felt like that, like, okay, you are not taking up certain responsibilities, then you are a bad guy. I don't know. Yeah, but I certainly felt that me taking up more and more responsibilities wasn't not really like reflected in my, uh, yeah, in my compensation and in my recognition. So it was just expected and then not compensated. Yeah, I think either way or both ways was a challenge. Like if it's yeah. it's not clear, if you participate, what does that mean? What does it not mean? And vice versa. What does it mean if you don't participate? And for the pros and the cons, it was not easy to, to participate for other than just learning the system. 
for me, the biggest challenge was all of a sudden I found myself in a place where I needed to divide my time between my work that I would do for a client. And then, okay, up until that point, all my time was going into that, plus maybe a bit of administration of of my work, but nothing else, right? And all of a sudden, I was in a position where I could, if I wanted to pick up new roles and responsibilities in management, but that would mean time away from client work. And I felt there was not really a well thought out base for that either. Okay, what's ideal? You know, what would be like a KPI or an OKR? Yeah, in 2023, we don't say KPI anymore. So what would be the target for certain seniorities? How much time? What kind of clients? I mean, this was up to us to to shape it again. But then, okay, do I spend my time shaping it or do I spend right. my time making money so we can shape it in other times? But this was a good learning to take with me for where I am now, that in, indeed you need more time. You need time for these kind of activities, activities if you want to build something. Yeah, It's not going to be built on its own. Time and energy. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about how we how we were compensated. What was the system behind it? Yeah, okay. Was there ever, by the way, a case study on this? Did these guys ever write one? I'm pretty sure they did. So we should find it and link it. Yes. So that might correct us, but as far as I remember, so the structure was, you already mentioned that it was a private limited company. Yes. So the idea was always to have some actual company that we can co-own and where we have we, where we can have administratively as well ownership represented and where it would be easy to recalculate that ownership periodically uh, how the time goes by and how the team expands or shrinks and for that the implementation was this private uh, limited company so where we were all shareholders and uh, our shares were always redistributed every three months or so. And that always represented the, the actual state of the company, like how much each people owns of that. And we had a shareholder agreement that regulated these transactions. And we were also employees of this company. Yes. Uh, so we got our salaries as an employee, and we got dividends as shareholders. Yes. And we also had pretty complex calculations on how exactly those share redistributions were happening. But the idea was basically, I mean, my understanding was basically that we got a salary level calculated by our letters and whatnot. And from that salary, we could convert basically 20% of that into shares. So yes. we didn't get that, but we got ownership instead of that. And people could decide to take just 10% from that. For example, people who had families and had more expenses could decide that, that way and get more cash at the end of the day. So basically our ownership uh, ratios were also dependent on our salaries which were dependent on the salary ladders and seniority ladders that we ourselves set for ourselves. And it was all transparent within the company. Yeah. So everybody knew 
everybody else in um, agreement or settlement on this not settlement agreement, the salary and the percentage of ownership. Yeah. Yeah, and as Aniko mentioned, oh, I'm talking third person now. <laughs> and as you mentioned, <laughs> hey, I'm here. <laughs> so as you mentioned, as the company would grow or shrink, these ownership levels would change. And in a good case, the company would grow, right? So that's the, in a good case that happens yeah. in economy. And which means that every single person loses some percentage of their ownership relatively but it's yes. yeah but the hole is a much bigger hole so yes. that so, so smaller percentage means more value indeed i thought it was a very exciting yes approach it was great in theory <laughs> <laughs> so just as a recap so the exciting duality of this company was that on one hand we were co-owners and on the other hand, we had a chance to participate in management and decision making. Yeah. Because out on the market, you often meet one or the other. I mean, you can be a shareholder without access to decision making and, you know, you trust uh, what it comes with. Or you can be part of management, but have no ownership in, in the game. And so I think this was a pretty unique combination. Yeah. And, and on paper, as you mentioned, it would have been amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was a great idea and we had some hiccups with implementation. As I mentioned, as we could affect decision-making, we could also have an effect on our salaries by iterating on the salary ladders that we had. So at one point, I decided to spend some time on that. And there's where the catch-22 of the whole situation comes in. So if I spend... A lot of my time iterating in, on these things and iterating on the organization and coming up with the most fair salary ladders and everything like that, then I am taking away time and energy from, for example, client work that brings in the actual money or working in one of our ventures. So when I'm working on that side, I can't amass like professional experience in the same rate as the as the people who are for example just working as developers yes. uh, like eight hours a day and working on many different projects and getting more and more challenging tasks on set projects so if we are distributing the money based on that like their professional contribution then I, of course i will always get less I think this is a wonderful case study of what is written in the books and why maybe management is separated from <laughs> yeah. actual production work. And we learned it firsthand. Yeah, it was a good learning to see that firsthand. Yes. But it did feel a bit unfair. Was there any resolution to that? Well, that was pretty close to the time when I uh, left the company. But that was not the sole reason for that. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the demise of at least our our participation. Presence. Yes, in in this company. Yeah. When and why did you leave that? So, effectively I left in 2017, so I was there for about 2 years. And a big part of the reason why I left was because I decided to move to abroad. Actually a project brought me abroad and then I decided to stay there. 
And while we experimented with remote work, which funny enough, three years later became the norm. Yeah. And the remote part was fine, but then somehow the sales part was more challenging aspect. So we. So you also had to do your own sales out there? Yes, in Holland, yes. So that, but that was part of our agreement. Um, so yeah. we. Um, we had an agreement that we would experiment with this setup for about six months. And if it didn't work out, we part way. So that was the main reason why it happened. But already prior to that, there were issues that I didn't feel comfortable with because I thought they were not going forward. Mm-hmm. And the main one was that, as I mentioned initially, or in the beginning, I was m- most motivated by joining a group where we can create our own system. So I guess I had more experience before working on production work, we can call that, so client work. And so the agency part for me was really important. And I was hoping to create one that we all love and can push forward. Not just do good work, but also enjoy it and be it in the system that we built. So I was very hopeful. Um, but as we went along, I think it started to show that this group of people who owned this company had a variety of motivations in, in joining, joining into it. And there were people in this group who didn't come from design or development. And they had less experience with that. And with basically agency work or client work. Yes, client and agency work. And whenever uh, the topic came to talking about the future of the agency, it felt to me that while some of us were trying to find a vision and a mission, so to create a brand and establish the values of that brand, it always just ended up at uh, the goal of making money because ultimately the agency is just a tool towards a bigger or a higher purpose. And I didn't feel comfortable with that. I, I didn't think that, and I still don't like an agency's purpose cannot be just making money because nobody's going to pay you just so they can pay you. (laughs) And even if ultimately they do, I mean, they pay for your work, but they work with you because of something else. They work with you because you represent something. And I felt that battle around that topic never came to a mutual agreement with everybody. So I think that was uh, the beginning of the end for me and my motivation. Yeah, especially when the other ventures started to take off. That's right. Let's mention that. And uh, when we started to put our focus on those, the agency part itself started to lose momentum very fast. And that's when we when we started to try to talk about how to make it better and how to make it basically survive. We couldn't really catch a good solution for that. So I have worked with uh, many different agencies before and at many different agencies before. And I have seen a couple of different ways that where they could function and be successful. 
there were some that had like one big client who supported them and then they could, they could experiment besides that with smaller clients or their own projects or there they were some good agencies where which had like a very narrow focus on clients and that way they could very easily find clients in that very particular niche mm-hmm. or that very particular technology yes or just even agencies which had like one very strong charismatic person who really wants to make that agency happen and does everything to get clients that could also work and we had none of those so the, for those who don't know how holacracy works the way it functions is that you know there's the list of different roles and different areas that need to be that need to be managed and roles that need to be filled Yes, and each role can be divided into, or it can be turned into a circle where more people want to participate in uh, filling that role. And and fulfilling the purpose of that role. So that yes. was the important word every, every time. So the role has a purpose, and you're working towards that purpose if you're in that role. And you can be more people, and then you become a circle. Yes. So, for instance, we had circles for marketing, HR... Um, finance and for the agency itself and there was never a firm head to that is that fair to say well it's fair yeah but it goes back to the hierarchical thinking that we are trying to avoid here yes yeah but you just mentioned there was a lack of vision and someone driving that and yeah exactly you need someone who drives that so yeah there were new ventures coming in or rather say uh, new ventures were springing up yes and those were more exciting so we worked on those some of us yeah worked on those (laughs) it created some kind of um, identity crisis for this company what are we i remember there was a moment where the brand was splitting up it was not one company anymore but instead we turned into multiple multiple companies we had an agency with a new name then. We had the original company that was the venture company. And then we had the new ventures, which were, again, separate companies, right? Yes. In one of the previous episodes where I walked with Tony, we talked about purpose and how it has become a big thing in the past few years, companies trying to define, well, define their purpose and how Interesting it is that companies even working for 20, 30 years doing that job. I don't think we did a good job at that. It also reflected in the lack of vision for the future. What will happen if we actually succeed? I mean, in many ways, if a new thing is being created, you try to list all the options, how it can fail and what you will do if it does. But what happens if it actually succeeds? I don't think we had a game plan for that, like a solid game plan for that. Yeah. Or like it definitely wasn't that detailed and carefully thought out on my end. Like what happens if one of these ventures suddenly becomes successful? I just couldn't really, I didn't really care about that case, to be honest, because that never happens, right? Until it does. Until it does. And it did. So it did, and I was still a shareholder, but that one of those ventures exited meant that the umbrella company, I was a shareholder of, 
got the order a larger sum of money. Right. That's good, right? That's when it becomes important that I have four persons in that company. Yeah, and also that's the scenario that I did not think through when I signed my shareholder agreement. So what happened, Aniko? Well, it turned out that 4% doesn't always mean 4%. Okay. And why is that? By the way, let me let me plug it in here. At this moment, I was not a shareholder anymore. So when I left the company as an employee, I also left the company as a co-owner for the reason that we had quite a severe disagreement with uh, the main shareholders. And to my peace of mind, the best decision was to go separate ways and live our lives happy like that. So I was not part of this when this success blew up. What happened to you? I also left my active shareholder and employed many years ago. Because back then I felt, yeah, we didn't talk about that part. Why I left the company in the first place. That's right. Why did you? So when I started to see problems with how the agency works and I felt that I was losing hope that it will be successful or even sustainable, and it felt like my original intention of joining here, that I'm not the one who has to worry about sales, is no longer fulfilled because I was constantly worried about sales. Mm -hmm. And I broke in clients. (laughs) And uh, that's not why I joined them. And so back at that time, I was mainly working in one of the ventures I was teaching. I have mentioned it a previous episode that I find it very important that whenever I teach, I also like to do some actual client work as well, or product work as well, to keep my knowledge fresh, especially if I'm teaching up-to-date new technologies. And because it was a new venture and we were from everything, we couldn't really have that because I had to teach. So I taught in the first four classes. And then I felt that although this is really fun and I admire what these people are doing with their lives, I cannot consciously go on and just teach and write materials all day without actually working on client work. Yeah. But to work on client work, I would have to sit back into the agency. We yes. didn't have clients. Yes. Like, not enough for not, not in a sustainable way. Yes. So at that point, as an owner of this company, I felt that the responsible solution is to leave my active team member role, leave my employee role, not take that much uh, salary out of the system. Because I cannot be useful in the system anymore. So I left. But when I left, uh, I did keep my shares. So not like you. Yes. And I also, for the first couple of years, was trying to like contribute to the team and the organization. And even when many other people left after the agency really did fall apart, I did organize some events where we could stay up to date about the company's status with each other. I think that's that important. That also created out after a couple of years. How many years was that? Since I left. Between when you left and when you 
exited. So I left seven years after two years of being active. You left the same year I did, maybe later. Yeah. I left early in 2017. So that was the answer to why I left uh, at the first time. But I am no longer a shareholder at, as of this moment, so I did have a second round of meeting as well. And that was after this uh, success event happened where self-factor uh, exited. Do you want to talk about the end? Yeah, you know, I don't really want to talk about the the actual details, implementation yes. details of what happened because we had agreements, we signed them. People had problems with that agreement even previously. We can mention that there were others who sued the company. Yes. Another side effect of having a co-owned company is that sometimes your co-owners start to sue you. Yes. And sue you for a couple of years. That can happen. So, yes. Not to go into details why I think who was right or who was wrong because, mm-hmm. you know, everyone thinks they're right. And that's why we have a different perspective on life and on what counts as fair or what counts for good intention. So what are your takeaways from this adventure? So I did not get what I expected. Mm-hmm. My first reaction was to, you know, I will never have a company with someone else again and, and all of those things. That's my instinctual reaction is to avoid that uh, altogether and avoid trusting people altogether. Because if you trust people and you trust people's good intentions, then you will just be taken advantage of. That I need, needed to sleep on that a couple of times, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, spending <laughs> forests. And my uh, conclusion was that is that I would always, always rather trust people and trust people's good intentions and sometimes follow my face than live a life without trusting people. Yes. And on a practical level? On a practical level, just get a, get a good lawyer, get your own good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Check everything that you signed. Exactly. Already in the beginning, I was going to say, not just at the end. And like, it's amazing to trust people, and it's also amazing to write everything down, keep everything super explicit, and check it with your own lawyer. Yes. What was your takeaway? In retrospect, I look at this as it was a prototype. It was a pilot for an interesting idea that that could have ended up right. It could have ended up well. We did prototype quite a few things in one, so maybe it was a lot <laughs> all at all at once. But I do have quite a few really helpful takeaways in my current practice. So one thing is really connected to what you just said is contracting. And I find that in my current practice, I have a lot more confidence and ease at doing that because I know how important it is to be in the clear in the beginning, what it is that we agree in, what it is that I will deliver, what it is that they expect from me. And I find that 
especially in this part of the world, but it's not just particular to here, but here especially, there's a big emphasis on, oh, let's we just trust each other and it will all be fine. And to me, it feels a lot more civil and comfortable if next to the trust, we actually also define what it is that we trust each other in. It's, it, and it goes both ways. I think it, it's comfortable for both parties if it's, it's clear. So that's one. I, I work quite a bit on these contracts and, and I feel more comfortable if we have them and if we both agree in what's in them. And I think I also feel comfortable if that's not okay with a client to say no, because I think it's for the peace of everyone's. It's okay. I accept if they, this is not their way of operation, but I also know that it is mine. So that's one. Another uh, takeaway for me was, as I mentioned, that you need to put effort into running your business, even if it's just a one-man show. When I first started freelancing right after this experience, I did uh, make an effort in making a business plan for myself, including everything that needs to go into calculating a salary, considering everything that you would consider if you had employees. So um, the holidays, sick days, the estimated percentage of your actual work out of your work hours, um, the investments you want to make into your own education. So a bunch of things like that. And that helped me come up with a number or actually rather a range within which I feel comfortable working. And so I, I know if I work for a client that, for instance, I, I do for, I don't want a charity, but I do for my own interest, maybe, even if it's a client with less financial means, I know how low I can go. And I also know what is the range in between that I, uh, I can work to keep my business afloat. So that's also important. And I think one of the top ones is really just how to run an effective meeting. And, yes. And I don't know if you remember, but I was pretty much against it in the beginning. I hated it because it was, and I still think it is a bit overstructured. Like I may not, I, I would maybe not run it exactly like that, but my God, I mean, it was so efficient and Yes. And compared to meetings that I sit in, my God, like that is the holy grail of meeting facilitation. So that is a big takeaway. And I like to use that if I can. Um, I think maybe these are the top three and some of the learnings with shares and investments and how we, yes. And how we look into maybe um, managing money as well. Oh, yes. And one more, which comes with the whole holoc holacracy structure, which was this collaboration and the power in it and the challenges in it and how when you decide to run a business will come with the wonderful opportunity to grow, but also with the crazy challenging moments of just finding consensus and doing something with a group of people, which... Yeah, which is actually something that I do, but I facilitate others' work like that. And in this case, it was our, of our own. Not even consensus. That's like the, <laughs> the opposite of what we need. Just a decision. Not True. everyone has to agree. True. It's just sometimes hard to accept them. Okay, so uh, what is our conclusion? 
So this was a tough topic for, at least for me to talk about, because yes. it had a lot of tension in it. It had a lot of emotional distress. Same for me. I mean, it was longer for me and a lot more happened between, but we did put it up for quite a bit. Yeah. But we thought to talk about it because it was a pivoting moment. At least it was a pivoting moment for me. Yes, definitely. For me as well. It did It did clarify for me values that I want to stand by and values that I don't. And I learned that it is better to take up a conflict early on than let it brew and have it blow up at the end. Yeah, that's a, that's a good takeaway and a good final thought for our final episode of this season. Yes, it is our final episode for the season. It is. So we're going on a little uh, summer break now and we will return in September, early September. Yes, the first week of September we are back, so we look forward to have you back with us. And in the meantime... We wish everyone a great summer. Thank you for listening to us until now. And if you have any ideas, thoughts, reflections, we would love to hear from you. Or if you have any ideas for topics that you would love to hear about in our next season, you can also reach out. Our Instagram account is uh, paths.puddles.products. DM us, message us, leave a comment and we will reply. Have a great summer, everyone. Have a great summer. Bye. Bye. Today's episode was recorded in the Buddha Hills. It was produced by Aniko Feyesh and me, Yuri Mata. Original music by White Hot from freebeats.io. Thank you for listening to us today. If you liked the show, please give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, let us know if you have any feedback, any thoughts, comments on the topic. We would love to hear from you. Have a lovely day and we look forward to hear you the next time around.